0: Welcome to Radio Survivor. We're here for the love of radio and sound. My name is Eric Klein, and on today's show, we are going to take a look at a government, a U.S. government-funded radio network that that covers the news and provides a balanced coverage of the United States of America, but it is not heard in the U.S. It is, it is a government-sponsored radio that is for Europeans only, and um, and many others across the world. The Historical Origins are for Europe, and now it's uh, heard across the world. And, of course, we're talking about Voice of America, as well as Radio Liberty, which is also known as Radio Free Europe. And our guests today are experts on the history of, of those radios. But it also, today on Radio Survivor, comes at a time when Voice of America is in the news, because a Trump-appointed head of the network is remaking the organization and trump's uh breaking news when we recorded this episode was the hearing had just taken place on capitol hill with the trump appointed head uh, voice of america who is named michael pack but we're not really uh, here to talk about michael pack on today's episode of Race fire more we're going to be covering the history of this network history of these radios uh, where they come from and this episode was produced by jennifer waits
1: Over the past few months, there's been a flurry of media attention focused on the United States Agency for Global Media. Some reports describe it as a little-known agency, and in fact, it may seem mysterious to many in the United States, since it oversees international broadcasting programs all over the world, including Voice of America and Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty. It's been in the news following the appointment of a new CEO, Subsequent personnel changes, and even a congressional hearing on September 24th. Today on Radio Survivor, we're joined by renowned experts in government sponsored radio. Welcome, Jane Curry, Professor of Political Science at Santa Clara University, Mark Pomer, National Security Fellow at the Clement Center for National Security at University of Texas, Austin, and Brandon Burke, Associate Archivist at the Hoover Institution Archives. Welcome everyone to the show today. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you.
2: I'm Jane Curry. I'm a professor at Santa Clara University and I'm also head of the Library of Congress's Cold War Radio Broadcast Project.
3: Uh, I'm Mark Palmer. I'm a senior fellow at the Clemens Center for National Security at the University of Texas in Austin.
4: And my name is Brandon Burke. Uh, I'm an archivist at the Hoover Institution Archives at Stanford University, and the Preservation Director of the Library of Congress Radio Preservation Task Force.
1: So I wanted to start out, I've long been fascinated with Voice of America and all the affiliated broadcasting agencies that are part of the U.S. Agency for Global Media, and I even went on a tour of Voice of America back in 2017, and and I'm still sort of confused about, about what what all these um, broadcasters do, and and probably in large part because I haven't had as much of an opportunity to hear the programming. So I wanted to start out and just talk about government-sponsored radio, which is what this organization really is a part of, the whole government-sponsored radio aspect of broadcasting. And maybe, Mark, you could explain to us what government-sponsored radio is.
3: Well, I would begin by saying that when Marconi invented or uh, international broadcasting shortwave broadcasting that could travel a thousand miles, a thousand five hundred miles, it opened up an opportunity for countries to reach other nations totally without any interference from outside. And the first ones to do it were the great empires, Uh, the Dutch Empire, British Empire, and they primarily did international broadcasting to reach their own expats. And that caught on in the 1920s and in the, by the 1930s, Soviet Union had international broadcasting, Nazi Germany had international broadcasting, but the United States did not. And Roosevelt actually resisted um, any kind of attempt to create international broadcasting saying it was un-American. Uh, and only only after the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor did the U.S. realize that it needed a voice to be explaining what is going on from an American point of view during the war. So it was really a creation of World War II. And initially, the languages were understandably German, Italian, Japanese, French for the uh, resistance. And, you know, in a nutshell, when the war ended, the general... Assumption was that Voice of America would end as well. And it was only with the start of the Cold War that the Voice of America actually had another lease on life. And then it started down the path of being the voice of the United States in an international arena. Mind you, every country in the world has an international broadcaster. Every major country and many minor countries, smaller countries have it. So the fact that the United States has it is perfectly normal in terms of international relations. There is would- one v- very, very important thing to keep in mind about the Voice of America, and, and we can come back to it many times. It operates under a law passed by Congress, which requires a balanced approach to the discussion of u.s policy and in the law it says voa will explain u.s policy and it will also reflect reasonable criticism of that policy and that is embedded in the law uh, and called the voa charter and that is what voa broadcasters turn to when they prepare their reports or when they prepare their uh their programs
1: And and do you think that is what makes it American? Because you mentioned this early resistance to having international broadcasting coming from the United States as being un-American. And does that make it American that you have a balanced view?
3: uh, Also, you have embedded in the traditions of Voice of America, the first words that the Voice of America broadcast in German basically stated, we will tell you the news. It may be good. It may be bad, but we will tell you what is going on. And the U.S., unlike any other country, reported on defeats during World War II. Uh, when the U.S. was losing, it reported. And so it decided very wisely that the best thing it could do is just to play it straight. And for the first few years, by the way, the relationship between VOA and BBC is, was very, very close. And a lot of the BBC programs were basically retranslations of Voice of America during the the war. Uh, That's a whole chapter we could explore. I mean, that's a fascinating chapter and one that I've been dealing with. But it is a very interesting beginning to what uh, the U.S. undertook. Mind you, the resistance to VOA came from commercial broadcasters who were afraid that the VOA would somehow uh, dominate and therefore take away listeners from them. And so the Smith-Mund Act, very important part of legislation from 1948, required the VOA to not be available within the United States because commercial broadcasters did not want a competitor coming from the government that would in some way, uh, perhaps, and also from the point of view of politics, it's best not to have the government broadcaster in a domestic environment.
1: I'm glad you explained that because that that has been another aspect of Voice of America that has um, fascinated me that this idea that it it shouldn't be broadcast into the United States.
3: Well, now of course, all of that's disappeared because you can listen and watch v o a uh on uh, social media. On YouTube or other means, and you can watch it just as well as anybody else. So that's disappeared with the new technologies. But up until the 1990s, that was very strictly adhered to.
1: So, stepping back a little bit, um, Jane Curry, if you could, can you talk a little bit about government sponsored radio in other parts of the world? Um, So, you know, we've been talking from a US perspective how government sponsored radio. Is operating. How does that compare to what happens, uh, what takes place in other countries?
2: Well, you have to really divide countries between authoritarian societies and ones that are democratic. In Britain, they have the BBC. In France, there's also a radio station. All of the Western countries have radio stations, but they tend to to broadcast out of the country, to get that country's news and information and positions to the rest of the world, the BBC. And they also broadcast in Britain, in France, in in Germany, in other countries. They also broadcast internally, but they're very careful about bias. And so these are not propaganda agencies. They are public information projects, media. Um, That's very different in authoritarian societies where radios are taken over by the government and used to put forth the government's position. So many things simply don't happen on the radios, even though they're happening on the streets and people see them. They're just ignored because they're not comfortable for the government. And To go on Radio for Europe and Voice of America, which have been the the media that the United States has to broadcast into authoritarian societies, largely or in the case of Voice of America, all over the world, have been very careful to present information in a fair way and in a complete way. So they're very different, but they're government projects to get, in the case of Voice of America... It's always been to get the American story out there in part. And Radio for Europe has broadcast into former communist communist states and then former communist states to give them information about what's happening in their own societies that they don't hear on their media. So that's really the scope of international media and the media in Eastern Europe and and Russia particularly that have really built America's radio presence and traditions broadcasting abroad.
1: And if, And if you're in one of these authoritarian countries that has state-sponsored radio with a very specific message, what is the reaction in those countries to Voice of America, Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty? Well, I can can, tell you... Oh, Mark, go ahead.
3: No, I was going to say it depends very much on what period of history you are focusing on. I mean, uh, up until Gorbachev's glossiness in the late 1980s, the Soviet Union not only practiced uh, severe censorship, but they also jammed the broadcasts of Radio Free Europe, BBC, Voice of America. In other words, they sent a signal on the same frequency, to blot out the signal that we were sending. And the irony is that they spent more money jamming than we ever spent broadcasting because it's a very expensive proposition to actually align your, your jamming stations, which they built all over the country. It wasn't always successful. And a lot of programs came through nonetheless, but uh, it is, it is indicative of the fact that they saw it as a very dangerous thing. Now, if you take the Russian example, and I was the head of the Russian service of VOA for many years. Uh, we put on air people who were in the United States, but were r- famous Russian writers or dissidents or musicians or artists, very often talking to their people in Russian over the Voice of America. That was considered, in addition to regular news and what was happening in the world, there was a lot of cultural program, a lot of music program, a lot of program about the arts. I mean, this is something that people don't realize that that it's a very complete radio station that we had science programs. We had a program on women in modern society. I remember that was something in the 1980s that was considered very, very interesting. It was a very complete 24 hours a day, seven days a week, just the Russian service alone. So what we did in Russian service might be different from what the Chinese service did or what the uh, French to Africa service did. So they were all like re- separate radio stations under one big roof.
1: Yeah. Um, Mark, maybe you could talk a bit about, so there's this whole U.S. agency for global media. What all does that encompass?
3: Well, that's a very recent development. Back in the Cold War days, these were just simply separate entities uh, with no legal Binding. It was really in the 1990s that they were somehow coalesced into one organization and very recently put under a federal agency. This happened only in the last year and a half or so. Uh, and the difference is very important in that Voice of America is a federal agency. So people working for the Voice of America are federal employees or they're freelancers working for it. Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, Radio Free Asia. Uh, Middle East Broadcasting, there are several of these surrogate broadcasters. They are private radios. I mean, these are private individuals. There's nothing. uh, They're not government employees. They are operating as a grantee of the U.S. government. And it's important to stress because they don't represent the United States. They They were set up to be what's called surrogate broadcasters. In other words, broadcasters as if they were in the country to which they are broadcasting. So they follow local news. So to give you an example, right now there are tremendous demonstrations in Belarus against Lukashenko. An amazing display of civil society uh, standing up to a dictator who has been in power for over 24 years. This is a perfect subject for Radio Liberty to be reporting on. They will try to get correspondence in. They will try to do interviews. They will follow that story in the greatest of detail for voice of america that story is important insofar (laughs) as it affects u.s relationships with europe with belarus with russia in other words its focus is from a distance looking down at a situation happening for radio liberty it is their bread and butter this is what they are all about and the uh leader of the opposition who is now Outside of Belarus, would be interviewed. She would be prominent on the radios. Uh, they would be covering every detail they possibly could of that situation.
1: And and for our listeners who may not be familiar with what Radio Liberty is and what Radio Free Europe is, um, can you explain those two broadcasters and and okay, how they're they different?
3: Were, if, if Voice of America emerges out of World War Two. Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty emerge out of the Cold War. And they really come out of thinking of George Kennan and many others at the late 40s, that there were a great number of uh, displaced persons living in Germany after World War II. Uh, Many of them were prominent writers, philosophers, political leaders, and it would be great to put them to work. I mean, they have no particular job. War-torn Germany uh, has no real economy going. And it was Kennan's idea, really, to say, why don't we give them a chance to communicate with the very people with whom they've been separated from. And so the radios, Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, really begin as emigre stations, as stations run. The Poles are running the Polish service. The Czechs are running the Czech service. The Russians are running the Russian service. The Ukrainians are running the Ukrainian service. So you have these different small radio stations where the focus is on the country that they know, the country that until recently they had been part of. And from there, those are the roots of Radio for Europe, Radio Liberty.
2: Radio broadcasting in terms of Voice of America and Radio for Europe really began... At the beginning of the Cold War, Radio for Europe started in 1948 and Voice of America in 1950. And Voice of America was to spread the the information about America and news in a fair and objective way around the world and encourage people to learn English. You could listen to English language lessons. And there was all sorts of, I guess, the most important part of It, for many people, was they had an amazing jazz program and pop music, and you could really learn about American culture as well as American events and news and positions. Radio for Europe was broadcast into the communist countries in order to let people know about their own country. And it had a really interesting effect because what it did was undercut the state, radio and television and newspapers that only broadcast positive stuff, often not true positive stuff, but positive things. So the goal was to confront these government radio stations and people with real facts about what was going on in their country. So Radio for Europe had an amazing, not spy organization, but a way to find out what was going on in Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union. And they broadcast those things back into um, the Soviet Union, Eastern Europe. And they also broadcast music and cultural programs from the West. So they were extremely popular. Maybe I I could just, yeah, Mark. No, I was going to
3: say just to follow up on what Jane uh, said that Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty took a very holistic approach to their part of the world. There was a very fine research center attached to the radios that produced a lot of academic research on Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union. There was a monitoring of local media so that uh, when I would come to work in the morning uh, in Munich, I would have basically a synopsis of all the things the Soviet media had broadcast over the night. You could see every story, every major figure, every nuance of what what had been done in Soviet media so that when you prepared a program, you had some idea what listeners were actually hearing on a day-to-day basis. Uh, And in addition to that, they did a lot of analysis of listeners and listenership which they did in a number of different ways. They interviewed, obviously, emigres. Anybody who emigrated would be interviewed extensively as to listening habits and approaches. They also tried to interview Soviet visitors in Europe who were there for various conferences or events to try to elicit what would make interesting programming and relevant programming. So there was a tremendous focus on the country to which you broadcast. Voice of America obviously was interested in that, but took a much more uh, distant approach, feeling that its primary responsibility was to reflect the diversity of the United States and the issues that that concerned it. There's a very famous, uh, uh the 20th anniversary of Voice of America, John F. Kennedy came to the VOA and gave what we all considered to be kind of a very brilliant synopsis of what the VOA is all about. And I would encourage anyone to go on YouTube and look up John Kennedy uh, on The Voice of America. And he talked about we must present the warts and all. We cannot possibly gain any listenership in the world if we are not talking about the problems of the United States. And so Voice of America actually gained a tremendous amount of credibility for covering the Watergate hearings, the greatest of detail, having a correspondent on Capitol Hill going through the Watergate uh, events. It covered the race riots. It covered uh, the assassination, obviously, of, of Robert Kennedy and Martin Luther King. I mean, these were things that Soviet listeners told me just absolutely blew them away. They couldn't believe that a U.S. radio station would be covering Really, frankly, events that cast the U.S. in not necessarily a favorable light. And they always went back to the point, again, encouraged by people like Kennedy, who made it a very, very explicit point that this is what he wanted to see, The Voice of America. Uh, now, there is always uh, give and take with government bureaucrats. Uh, I remember all kinds of nasty cables coming from the embassy. Why are you doing this and why are you doing that? And you're reflecting the U.S. in a negative light or whatever the case may be. But that kind of tension is true for any news organization. It's true for PBS. It's true for NPR. It's true for anybody. That You're always going to be in some kind of a tense situation with possible different funders and what those funders expect and what they don't expect, Voice of America is no different. I mean, it's caught in that web. And the only way that it could do its job is by always resorting to, we have a law, that law was passed, it's a bipartisan law, and this is how we operate. So, if I may add, today, if you want, you can read the VOA report on the hearing yesterday on Capitol Hill. And they will quote Congressman Engel. They will quote the critics of PAC, just as if PAC were just another employee someplace else.
1: I think he this doesn't a-
3: get favorable treatment. He doesn't get unfavorable. It's a straight story. It's there on the VOA, it's there in English, it's there in every language.
0: So Mark Pomar uh, just mentioned uh, the news of the week here on Radio Survivor about Voice of America, where there have been hearings in Congress uh, on September 24th, the day before we broadcast. But but this program on Radio Survivor Day talking about uh, Voice of America and radio-free Europe um, in the world uh, is more focused on history, and we do want to talk about uh, this news. But, but first, we're going to stay focused on the 70-year history of radio-free Europe and Voice in America. And so Jane Curry... You are professor of political science at Santa Clara University and co director of the Cold War radio project.
2: Yeah, I would like to add to what Mark had said because I lived in in Eastern Europe for some of the years when the radio was, these radios were the only source of real news. I remember, first of all, people. Where in
0: Eastern Europe did you live?
2: I lived in Poland. And in Poland, which was one of the more liberal countries, and I also spent time in Russia, listening to either of these stations was not a safe thing to do in the 60s. And certainly the 50s and the 60s, it wasn't a safe thing to do. But what was interesting is that people listened. And I would be asked when I interviewed political leaders if it was really true that this had happened or this had happened in the United States, and why were these radio stations broadcasting negative things about the United States? And I'd say because that's what news is. They're not there to decide what's positive and negative, they want people to have a real picture. Of what's going on. I, the other story I have to tell is really about Radio for Europe, and I can tell many of these stories, but I was driving around in a tiny Volkswagen with five people who wanted to listen to Radio for Europe but were afraid to listen to it in their homes. And as we were driving around, we heard the announcement on Radio for Europe that Mao Tse had died. It took almost a week. For Mao Zedong's death to be announced in the Polish press because it had to be checked with the Russians. It had to be checked with all kinds of political and foreign policy people in Poland. But Radio Free Europe, particularly because it broadcast about these countries, forced them to talk about things. And I found when I went back and looked at the archives of the radio stations that they would say, radio for your broadcast this, we have to broadcast it. And so that forced these stations and the newspapers even to begin to tell more things honestly about what was happening in their own countries or what was happening in the Soviet Union. It wasn't always safe, but it was extremely important to people it was difficult to get because it was often jammed so that you would hear all sorts of static and you couldn't really understand what was being said. But people would move their radios all over their houses. They would go to the countryside to listen because for some reason the jamming was less there. Getting on Radio Europe was really important. And it was also something they were t- willing to take risks to do. And they did all kinds of things to to protect themselves. In the middle of the summer, they kept the windows closed on their houses so people wouldn't hear it from the street. But I used to listen to it and keep my windows open and people would stand outside and listen. So it played an amazingly important political role in terms of forcing the media in all these countries to move closer to telling the truth and telling negative things about their countries. And if you studied journalism, there, there was a course about Radio for Europe and Voice Voice of America and the BBC where students were supposed to learn about their methods. So I think we have to really take seriously the impact it has on its audience, which is not Americans, but the audience is the rest of the world and the picture it gives to East Europeans. It really was the root of their obsession with jazz and pop music because they heard it on these stations. And since they couldn't often hear it in their own countries, it made it even more special. Um, So I think we really have to begin to look, start with the past because it played a major role and it still plays a major role in countries that are authoritarian.
1: So Jane Curry, you and Brandon Burke are co-directors of the Cold War Communication Project. That's part of the Library of Congress's Radio Preservation Task Force. So so clearly this material, it's important to preserve. And and Brandon, I'd like to turn to you to just ask a little bit about that project and what sorts of material are in the archives.
4: Uh, th- uh, thank you for asking. Um, This project came to be uh, during the International Association of Sound and Audiovisual Archives Conference in Washington, D.C. in 2017, I believe, 18. And um, uh, we've produced a couple projects to date. I think um, the uh, Radio Preservation Task Force Conference, the second one, uh, Jane can talk about that. Mark also participated in some sessions there. Um, The thing that I produced, that I co-produced, uh, as a collaboration with the broadcast archive section of the International Association of Sound and Audiovisual Archives, uh, we call that YASA, is a document called Research Collections with Cold War Era Radio Materials. And um, it's a subject guide containing profiles of broadcasters and collecting institutions, such as national libraries and national archives and universities, with uh, with materials documenting or let's say, otherwise pertaining to radio production during the Cold War. So that would be um, collections of broadcast materials, but it's also paper records of the, uh, the day-to-day business production of um, radio broadcasters during the Cold War. And that would be, we didn't want to limit it to um, uh, broadcasters that were um, uh, Acting as Cold War agents, but uh, anyone broadcasting during the Cold War, because I think any broadcaster couldn't help but be could, uh, caught up in what was happening at that time. Um, so that is available uh, on the Yasa website at um, yasa/web.org, uh, uh, and it's in the, broad- the broadcast archive section um, section of that page. And then maybe Jane can talk about the series of uh, talks she organized at that conference of which uh, Mark was one of the great participants.
2: We had a conference. um, It was a, a larger conference, but the group that spoke in terms of Cold War broadcasts was ranged from people who studied it to people who were participants in it. And we were discussing the ways in which that information was produced and the effect it had. And I think there's much more research to be done and there because now we have access to the archives in many of these countries and can actually see what they said and discussed about Radio for Europe and Voice of America and all of the other channels. it was difficult to do audience research we could do audience research with immigrants, um, people out traveling, but we couldn't really get a handle on the percentage of people that were listening in these countries from their um, research organizations, at least initially. But in the 19, late 1970s in Poland, there was so much concern in the government about the, the impact of Radio for Europe and Voice of America and the BBC that they actually set up an organization that did research to see what people listened to and why. And they included these as stations that were important to know about. They didn't ignore them, which was different from most communist societies. Um, Usually they tried to ignore the stuff that came from outside and that questioned their power.
3: If I can jump in at this point and say that in the 1990s, the Soviet archives opened up. They're now closed again. But for about 10 years, a lot of the Soviet uh, archives were fairly open. And what we learned was that the uh, high-level Politburo and Communist Party members of the Central Committee each day would get a synopsis of what RL, Radio Liberty, what VOA, what BBC broadcasts in the past 24 hours and this was considered information very very important to the governor elite of the country and you could tell from the archives who was rising in politics and who was fading by whether or not they received this very coveted uh, write-up and synopsis of, of the radio broadcasts and they looked to that as something not only to understand their own society as Janie just described but also to figure out what were the priorities and views of the United States and be able to, therefore, maybe adjust their policies uh, accordingly. There are some moments that I think uh, need to be stressed as one of the great moments of all three stations. I'm thinking of RFRL, VOA, and we'll include BBC, and that's, of course, the Chernobyl uh, disaster that took place. Uh, you may recall that when the uh, atomic uh, station erupted, the Soviet Union was dead silent for days on end and said nothing as radioactivity was floating over Belarus into Sweden, into Europe. Uh, VOA, Radio Liberty, and BBC went on 24 hours talking about what it is. We at VOA brought in experts on uh you know, poisoning by radiation poisoning. We had doctors. We were broadcasting the most careful work we possibly could because these people's lives were literally in danger. The Soviet Union did nothing. And when they did start speaking, they, of course, downplayed it uh, considerably. That is probably one of the great kind of uh, crowning moments of when the radios rose to a level of, Absolutely, being indispensable, and I think it gained uh, a listenership that carried the radios through the eighties, through Glasnost, mm-hmm. through Perestroika, into to the end of the Soviet Union.
0: Mark, Mark Bomar, you, what was your job that day when when the was I was Black- the director
3: of the Russian service of the Voice of America.
0: So, what did what can you tell us a little bit about your workday and how you, how, you know what what you did?
3: I had a staff of 180 people. We broadcast 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We had three shifts. We, uh, you know, had, uh, you know, our news. We we had many, many, we had 46 different programs, 46 different programs. In addition to news and news features and interviews, we had the whole gamut from science, technology, pop music, classical music. It just went on. And different people produced different parts of that program.
0: Tell tell me about what? What you were, what your work day was like uh, when the Chernobyl disaster occurred in 1986.
3: Well, my whole life was for you know I was in the studio probably 18, 19 hours a day. Went home for a few hours, came back again. But really, it was a matter of getting the right people on air who could be very good, calm, and intelligent broadcasters in Russian, and to bring in the experts who could elucidate what. The after effects of that catastrophe could be. In other words, um, what was the rate? What were the symptoms? What were the things to look for? How best to avoid ex- additional radiation poisoning? Uh, this is what we dealt with. And um, I would say, I don't. I mean, I know VOA programming very well on this course because I was there. But BBC, I know Deutsche Welle, the German international broadcaster, Radio France International virtually everybody was involved in somehow providing information uh, of immediacy and of relevance to to a population you know criminally denied any information i mean basically it's a criminal act
0: yeah it, it reminds I- me uh strangely of um, how important it is to get good information now during our pandemic where where the media can play such an important role in. You know, in in updating listeners on the latest uh, science to keep people safe so that people can can go about their lives, you know, and live, live their uh, incidentally, lives as, as much as uh, they can. Incidentally,
3: uh, uh, let's say Dr. Fauci's testimony on Capitol Hill will be broadcast in Russia, not Voice of America, yep. as, just as an example of something that would be taking place today as we speak.
2: Can... Can I just add from another perspective that when the Prague Spring happened, Czech radio and, and television tried to ignore the fact that it was happening. And local activists would call Radio Free Europe to tell them what was going on and Radio Free Europe would broadcast it back into to Czechoslovakia, which many people there say was critical to making that gathering of people, to gather people together to get real social involvement in the Prague Spring. And if they hadn't had it, people outside of downtown Prague might not have known what was going on. So Radio Free Europe has played a real role in, in encouraging change in their these societies and making them safe. I'm sure now Voice of America is broadcasting about the pandemic in Russia as well. Oh, I think Brandon had something to add, too. Oh,
4: yeah. Well, I was just going to say that in the in the months leading up to the 30th anniversary of Chernobyl, um, I received a number of reference requests at, uh, at the Hoover Archives, um, where we manage the Radio Free Europe Radio Liberty broadcast archives. Um, one of those requests came from the uh, still-functioning Ukrainian service of RFURL, uh, but some of the other requests I got. Well, first of all, I should say that we don't have any sound recordings uh, that cover Chernobyl, except for odds and ends ones that uh, that were unlabeled that we digitized uh, anyway in the course of trying to find something. But um, we don't have any tapes at all from the nineteen eighties. And um, what we do have, uh, we do have scripts, and these are uh, pre-written scripts rather than transcripts. They're pre-written. Um, but what I learned, which I found pretty interesting, was, of course, um, Chernobyl was on April 26th of 1986. And looking at the scripts, there's no mention of it on any programming until the 29th. And my only guess there was that um, the Soviet uh, government was so uh, tight-lipped about this that even RFERL didn't hear about it until the 29th. And that's, that's all, all, all documentation I can find about what was broadcast uh, in April of uh, 1986 uh, indicates that nothing was mentioned until uh, April 29th. And then I want to say one other thing that kind of speaks to the mysterious nature of some of this stuff, and that is the requests that I got from the researchers about Chernobyl, um, not just the Ukrainian service, uh, were, were sometimes funny. More than once when I told somebody that we didn't have any tapes from the 1980s from the Ukrainian service, and this is for a very practical reason, and it's because the um, there was a mandate at some point at RFERL to start recording over tapes purely as a means of saving money. And fair enough, you know. Um, but anyway, when, when I tell certain researchers that we don't have tapes, <laughs> the tone is immediately suspicion. They say, oh, you don't? Okay. And sometimes the suspicion is such that that the implementation is that Hoover has something to do with keeping this under wraps, mm. when the reality is we didn't get those. It's just like any other archival collection. If it's the Brandenburg collection and you don't have any of my correspondence with Mark from last year, it's because I didn't happen to give it to you. And so we're, we're in archives and we can only give people what we were given. And um, it's I just find that continuing suspicion even now pretty funny.
3: Uh, If I may say, I've been using the OSI, Archive for Radio Liberty, in Russian, and I have found it to be quite rich. I mean, thousands of programs I've been able to listen to and cross-listen to, and uh, I would say the uh, Open Society Institute archives in Budapest uh, have literally thousands, now mind you, there were many, many more than that, but I find a pretty good representation, both in the fifties, the sixties, seventies, and eighties, uh, in that uh, in that collection. The
4: way that the materials have been distributed among different collecting institutions is is, is pretty interesting. If we if we we kind of started with VOA, so I'll start there. Um, the sound recordings are split largely between the National Archives in uh, College Park, Maryland and the Library of Congress Culpeper facility in, uh, in Culpeper, Virginia. And the, the news, well, let's just say the, the news, the, the non-performing arts program is largely what is held at NARA. And the Library of Congress has mostly performing arts stuff, such as um, Norman Grant's jazz programming. And then there's other pockets of stuff that, that ended up elsewhere. The, the Willis Conover Collection, who produced quite a number of jazz programs, that's at the University of North Texas. And then um, as Brandon, far as...
1: Can people, can people listen? You know, you're mentioning some intriguing programs. Are people able uh, to listen to any of those in the archives?
4: That's an excellent question. Um, I looked up, I, I was, thought that might have, uh, be asked. Um, I see that on the, on the National Archives, when I say NARA, I mean National Archives, on the, on the NARA website, there's about 20,000 recordings that are searchable, but not listenable. And they have an estimated 100,000 total recordings of, and this is VOA, from 1942 to 2002. So there are some of them are discoverable, but not listenable. And then uh, on online anyway, I think you'd have to go on site to actually hear them. And then the Library of Congress content of Voice of America is, again, this jazz programming. And I think there the issue is a rights issue. Because um, if the situation there is anything like RTRL, I've been told from past presidents of RTRL that any um, performer, let's say it's Louis Armstrong or Izzy Gillespie or somebody that would have appeared at RTRL in the past, would have, have had to have signed somewhere another type of waiver that said that the, whatever they're gonna do is from the property of the radios. Well if that paper doesn't exist anymore, then neither does that agreement. So then that those rights fall back to that performer. So I think most of that stuff uh, has to be listened to on site at, at either L.C., at, 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 I should say Library of Congress, or at the National Archives. And then with Radio Free, or Radio Liberty, which is the, uh, the collection that I helped steward, they have given the Hoover Institution Archives a green light completely to make all of that content available online, and as much as we haven't digitized so far. So we've digitized, of the 98,000 um, real, real tapes, to say nothing for other Media. We digitize personally about 6,500, all of which are available on our website from very different language services. And we try to prioritize by um, historically s- significant moments of uh, Prague Spring, like Jane mentioned, or Velvet Revolution or the uh, Romanian Revolution in 1989. And then um, there's materials that are available online at other places. Mark mentioned the Open Society Archives in Budapest, they have the complete digitized recordings of the Russian service available, and that's all online. Um, the complete digitized Polish service is available as a co-produced website of Polish radio and the uh, and the Polish state archives there. So, uh, and then I should also mention, because Mark mentioned it, the monitoring tapes, which was um, the monitoring department that would record and monitor what state-run radios were uh, broadcasting from day to day. All of those tapes are at the Hoover Institution Archives. Um, So we have hundreds, particularly for the Czechoslovak service and the Hungarian service, the earliest services that were functioning in the 50s and 60s. And Hoover also has the audience research reports that that, that Mark mentioned. And then the research department that Mark mentioned, all of that stuff is at the Open Society Archives in Budapest. Um, If someone wants to get deeper into this, Googling Hoover Archives Radio Free Europe will get you where you want.
1: It, yeah it sounds kind of incredible how much you have there and and these what sound like air check tapes of of the um, of the of the other broadcasts going on in the countries that's fascinating that those are also available
4: and it calls into question do those recordings exist elsewhere because as, as an archivist I think the onus is on us to preserve the business and cultural production of the folks that entrust us with their materials but um, do, do the monitoring tapes fall into that category and are they unique? And if it turns out they're unique, the, the onus, it turns out, is on us to preserve what Czechoslovak national radio was broadcasting on that day.
1: I wonder if now is a good time to talk about what's happening right now um, because there has been significant news about change in leadership at the U.S. Agency for Global Media, a new CEO was installed in June of 2020. And following that, we had a number of firings at these agencies and then a number of people left of their own accord. And then a hearing um, in the house this week, the week that we're recording this episode. And and so I'd love to hear a bit from from all of you about what is your reaction to the changes going on? And what do you think that signals for these broadcasters?
3: Well, if I can start, I can, I can say from sitting back and and observing it from a distance that there is a systematic, uh, and I think very destructive uh, attempt to, uh, harm the radios, to change its long established practices and, uh, traditions, uh, There have been attempts in the past by administrations to uh, impose their will on the radios, probably the most sort of blatant one until this time. It was the early years of the Reagan administration, 81, 82, when also a number of changes took place. And the first two years were very rocky and people were very unhappy. And the Voice of America journalists were up in arms against what they thought were was unnecessary interference by, by Reagan officials in the White House. But within two years, those same um, officials were gone, and VOA went back to much more of its traditional approach. Uh, this one appears to be excessively destructive and also very um, mean-spirited. I mean, to, to fire people without even the courtesy of finding out what they were doing and how they were operating strikes me as, as, as one of the most destructive ways of, of, of approaching an organization is morale. Uh, I think that in typical VOA and RFERL fashion, the journalists will fight back. I mean, they're not going to roll over and, and, and accept that kind of approach. But I think it's very destructive at a time when, and we haven't talked about this, but at a time when China, the largest international broadcaster in the world is China by leaps yes. and bounds, uh, is increasing its broadcast, when Russia, with RT and, and Sputnik and other stations, is increasing its um, reach around the world, including the United States, uh, uh, we are sort of falling behind. And we are in some kind of civil war situation within our own media environment at a time when, when I think a clear and unequivocal U.S. voice should be heard uh, in the world.
0: Mark, I haven't been following this story at all. Is was there any explicit explanation? Like, was was there coverage in Voice of America that um, that the Trump administration uh, disagreed uh, yes. with? Yes,
3: there was a um, language service, and I forget whether which one it was. Whether it was one of the Indian languages, whether, uh, but. That they played some um, tape of of uh, Biden that that they said was not sufficiently balanced with an appropriate response from Trump or something right. of that so nature. It's, I don't so it's know coverage, the specific coverage of, that. of the but I will election. say though that someone must have told the White House that VOA covered the impeachment hearings in the greatest of detail. Yeah, uh, including all the testimony of Fiona Hill and Ambassador Taylor and all the other uh, people who were testifying on the hill all went in russian simultaneously translated uh, uh and that is something that the away would do that's what they did the watergate hearings that's what they did and probably in the clinton one and, and now in the in the trump one i'm sure that got back to the white house and that probably caused uh, an explosion of some sort but i think there's a there's a a concerted effort Uh, There's been accusations that that some of the foreign journalists uh, are working for foreign governments with no particular proof. Uh, Some of the journalists were sent home, which is very cruel because the countries, they were sent home to are authoritarian dictatorships and having worked in the U.S. and having worked for Voice of America puts their lives in danger. And they were summarily (laughs) sent home. So there's been a kind of a nastiness that I have not seen at any time in the previous years.
0: Yeah, and and you're referring to the the leadership of the current uh, head. I'm the- referring
3: specifically to Michael Pack and the immediate people that he's brought on board. Yeah,
0: and this is all a, st- a story that just really started developing. I think while um, while other news was was distracting, you know, people like me, uh, you know, I, I I this was not on my.
1: Well, in some radio. of. And some of the news that I have seen uh, reports on the U S agency for global media as a little known agency. So in some of the mainstream news in the U S that's how it's described, but obviously there well, are big implications for this. The agency. PBS
3: news hour ran a, a fairly good segment yesterday uh, on, on the, on the situation, the New York times and the Washington post have covered it in considerable detail and, uh, I think indicative of the atmosphere today in Washington was that Michael Pack, although subpoena to testify, did not show up. And I think that's sort of indicative of, of where we are in the political spectrum altogether. That's that sort of where where unfortunately we are.
1: Jane Jane Curry, I'd love to bring you in because I know that you're you're also very interested in misinformation being packaged as news. So I know you're going to have a lot of perspective on this. Well, I think the
2: first thing to say is that the real tragedy of this is that we're presenting a picture of America now through the attempt to control VOA and to stop it broadcasting the truth. We're presenting a picture of America as a rather authoritarian society. So it seems to me that we're really undercutting um, America's image abroad, and that's not what these agencies should be doing. I also think that this kind of misinformation really makes it very difficult to criticize other systems about how they control the media, because we're not even controlling our own media for our own people. We're controlling the image of America or trying to control the image of America for people in other countries. So it's an even more despicable thing, and we're firing people. And I'm sure that when those journalists go back to their home countries, as long as they're not in prison or killed, that story is going to get out. And we don't want to look like an authoritarian society because America's always been the beacon of democracy and freedom. So I think it's this is a far more significant tragedy than many people are seeing it as. Because of what it does not only to the journalists, not only to these radio stations, but what it does to America's image abroad and our ability to set ourselves up as a leading country of democracy.
3: You know, if I may jump in and say there's a curious irony at work, because the person who saved Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty in the early 90s, when the decision had been initially taken by the Clinton administration to close Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, this is the peace dividend, we don't need it anymore, communism is gone. I was then the executive director of the Board for International Broadcasting, which is the precursor to the USAGM agency today and we went on the hill to explain and there was one senator who took up the cause and who basically i would say single-handedly saved the radios and that curiously was joseph biden uh we went to see senator biden he greeted us without any uh you know imperial air he got very interested in what the radios were doing he bought the, the the idea that this was very important And he said, I'll talk to Clinton, we'll take care of it, don't worry. And so in many ways, the Broadcasting Acts of 1993-94 are really the work of of Biden and his staff, especially his staff, which was remarkably good at understanding the importance of a gradual... We all understood that parts of Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty would, would end. The Polish service ended, the Czech service ended. It was understandable that they no longer needed it. But the idea was that we would do a smooth and logical transition and see how events unfolded in the 90s. And I think it's sort of ironic that as the two people are battling it out for the presidency, uh, we have, in a sense, the little world, the little known agency that you mentioned very much at at, at very different, different perceptions of of what they should do. Yeah,
1: Yeah. that's amazing.
4: (laughs) You know, it's worth mentioning the, the the continued the continued relevancy of the radios. Um, it's it's notable that in in the last handful of months, the Hungarian service, which had uh, ceased operating, I'm looking now in 1993, was recently started again um, because of the, the the lack of free free media, free press there. And then the Romanian service, which had kind of rebranded into the Moldovan service, uh, that had folded or ceased to operate because the the need didn't seem to be there in 2008, has also started up again.
1: Yeah, so that's curious timing. Um, uh, That's an interesting perspective to add to that, Brandon.
3: But I think we should also go back and see what the other countries are doing. And especially I mentioned China, but uh, China doesn't broadcast the United States, but it broadcasts throughout Latin America, especially Africa, which the Chinese are pretty much seeing as their new colonies and Chinese media basically they are at the core of, of african local media because they buy it up they broadcast it it's the chinese perspective if we want to have any voice in africa which is obviously a very very important place for the 21st century voice of america is probably one of our, our only ways of reaching the vast vast uh, population of africa there's a long tradition of excellent voa broadcasting to africa and all the different, both in Hausa and in Portuguese and in French and lo- other local languages, that whole area of Africa broadcasting and VOAs is, is really our only means to it. Middle East is another one. You've got Iran. You've got, the, this is our way of reaching the, the next generation of, of uh, uh, Arabs and others in the Middle East. And so I think at a time when we should be thinking strategically how to bolster our broadcasting, we are mired in a in a civil war inside Washington, which is only going to bring about more damage, lower morale, and, and probably worse programming.
1: What are, what are some of the speculations about how some of these changes might affect programming at Voice of America and, and some of the other broadcasters? Jane, do you have any kind of crystal ball about that? I don't have a crystal ball about that, but I can speculate
2: with a great deal of certainty that the political programming, which has been so impressive to the rest of the world, because we've presented both sides or all sides, will be the first thing to be biased and go in terms of the freedom it has. Um, Maybe cultural programming will stay around, but I'm not sure this administration sees American culture as that valuable either. I think these radios, if we continue to have this administration, are facing a very rough era if they survive, because I don't think Donald Trump cares. And I think there's a real sense that if we broadcast anything negative, it will be negative about the United States as a whole, when the fact is that broadcasting negative things about our country is impressive to people. Sometimes they don't believe it could be that negative, but that our radios could broadcast something that's critical of the regime teaches people about freedom. So I think we're really hurting ourselves badly and not getting our story out or American culture out.
1: Yeah, that's been really compelling for me to hear these stories about how Voice of America and other the other broadcasters have really been presenting that message of freedom of the press and freedom of expression around the world.
4: It's worth mentioning that uh, that PBS NewsHour segment yesterday, yesterday being September twenty fourth, um, mentions I believe it was it was the Indonesian service of. Uh, Of VOA that had had played that that Biden segment. And then later on in that PBS NewsHour segment, you see two correspondents from the Indonesian service at an airport being escorted out of the country. And they're apparently one of over 70 VOA journalists whose visas were not renewed. But um, as perhaps retaliation for having aired that Biden segment, the PBS NewsHour uh, segment goes on to show a very pro-t- uh, pro-Trump segment where someone from his, uh, they, they say this person is a campaign official, uh, is is speaking on the, Spanish, what they call the VOA Spanish network. I don't know if, that it, if that's how VOA would name it. But anyway, on the VOA Spanish network saying, quote, the Biden campaign will destroy Hispanic families. So that's what they were at. So this is something that's happened since, since the PAC report is now these things are being
0: we learned from you today that these radios, as you've been referring to them, were launched by an act of Congress, if I'm getting my facts right, uh, 70 years ago. When Congress passed the laws to to fund these radios, um, they gave the president the power to, to appoint leadership. Is that how it was written?
3: Uh, different things for different stations. Now, obviously, a federal agency like Voice of America, the director of the Voice of America, is a White House uh, appointed Senate confirmed position okay uh, radio for Europe Radio Liberty president is not it's a private citizen uh, and that is in my time was appointed by a bipartisan board so in in the during the Cold War radio for Europe Radio Liberty was governed by what was called the board for International Broadcasting which was by law a bipartisan board with the chair being of the party of the president. So in the 1970s, the chair would have been under Carter would have been a Democrat in the 1980s. The chair would have been a Republican when Clinton came to power in 93, it reverted to being the chair being a Democrat. I mean, that's just the, the way it was set up and it was bipartisan. So you had to have, you know, prominent Republicans, prominent Democrats on, on the board. We had, by the way, some very interesting people. We had uh, James Michener, the, the the writer, was was one of the Democrats on the board for international broadcasting with a keen interest in Poland and really wanted to be on, on the Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty board because of his interest in, in Eastern Europe. So it was, and they, the bipartisan board, selected the president and the executives of the radios. It was not a White House uh, appointment at all. And because the radios are private, there was no classified information at the radios. It was there was no, it was not a government entity. Uh, Voice of America is different. It was a government entity, although at a pretty much arm's length from the State Department or from USIA. Uh but nonetheless, it had more government uh, involvement.
0: It's a difficult, <laughs> it's a difficult not to unwind today on Radio Survivor because the the news about what's happening is 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 uh ongoing and developing and uh work by the time this conversation airs on on september 30th um who knows what the what the breaking news will have been in the in the days between the conversation being recorded and the conversation airing i wonder if we should talk more about about the history of you know, a voice of America, for instance, I, I think Mark Palmer, you had mentioned that there were a handful of years where uh, Reagan administration officials tried to exercise a greater control over yes, the they did. editorial um, content.
3: Well, I would say that, first of all, um, to take you back a little bit, uh, there was something called the Crusade for Freedom that raised money for Radio Free Europe in the 1950s. Uh, it was an attempt to sort of present the radios as being independent, which, of course, they were not financially. One of the main spokesmen for it was Ronald Reagan. And so he campaigned in, in 1980 with by stressing the importance of Voice of America, Radio Free, Europe Radio Liberty. If you look at the first NSC document, the first policy document that came out of the White House in 1981, which is available online, by the way, you can look it up, read it. Uh, it placed a very high emphasis on the importance of the radios in terms of dealing with the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe. This translated initially into the appointment of, shall we say, rather um, exuberant cold warriors uh, who came to, to the voice, very much uh, resisted by the by the staff, uh, there was a fellow called Philip Nicolaides, who uh, was an advertising uh, executive in Houston, who wrote this amazing memo, which basically said we should be fighting the Soviet Union, and this is the best way of doing it, uh, much reviled by the professionals at VOA. And uh, curiously, within a year or so, was let go and fired, and and really uh, a much more stable, more more sort of uh, calm approach uh, was adopted. I would say that Reagan personally came to the VOA studios to uh, to do his Saturday talks. Uh, I saw him a couple of times, twice, I think. He came when I was there uh, on a Saturday to address people outside the United States on a Saturday. So he paid a lot of attention, but I think that that did not translate into necessarily changing the content. Quite to the contrary, In a curious way, there was a sort of freedom for VOA to broadcast pretty much a lot of different things that in the past had been maybe under detente were considered too provocative. So, for example, under uh, uh, President Ford and under President uh, Carter, Solzhenitsyn, the Russian writer, Nobel laureate, who had written the Gulag Archipelago, was basically kept off the air because it was considered too provocative toward the Soviet Union to have such a prominent person appear on The Voice of America. Well, by the 1980s, we could have Solzhenitsyn on all the time we wanted. I mean, we just interviewed him, and and that was fine. There were no restrictions. There was a kind of a sense of you could do all kinds of interesting programming in the 80s. So on one hand, they brought in a certain initial ideological approach, but it actually ended up being a much freer and more interesting period to work at The Voice than uh than in the past i will mention Janie will remember this incident but do you remember when reagan went on the mic uh thought it was a dead mic someplace in california and said i have outlawed the soviet union we're about to begin bombing in 10 minutes yes okay do you remember that yes we broadcasted on voa russia without ever giving it a second thought because that was the news of the day uh, and the voice of America director said, "Of course, you should do it. That's, that's the news. We're not going to not broadcast it if that is what the news is of the day." But, <laughs> I mean,
2: you, but you also contextualize. Yeah, it, you did right? contextualize it. But <laughs> we contextualize.
3: We explained that obviously it was a dumb joke, and he probably shouldn't have done it. And it was, it was a, he thought it was a dead mic, and so on. But yes, we, we contextualized it. But we went with it as news, and I remember it very, very distinctly. So uh, I think you know, there's always a give and take. And I think that the the key is to have a director of the Voice of America who is fundamentally a journalist and understands what journalism is about. And in my time, there was uh, Gene Pell, who was a very good director. He had come out of NBC News. He had been an NBC correspondent for many years uh, overseas. And he was a very understanding journalist in terms of of what The Voice should produce. If you recall, John Chancellor, the many, for many many years, the the anchor of NBC News, was also a VOA director at one point. So the VOA attracted prominent journalists to to join, uh, usually at the director level. Well, Mark and yeah, I
0: I wonder if you'd be willing to to respond to my question as a political pundit. Then it I would. It, it seems to me that one way to understand this this struggle over the voice of america is is that there is now in the united states a significant political disagreement about the role of journalism uh in in society like what 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 job what is the job of reporting a story and what does it mean to report the news um has now become uh, uh significantly fractured depending on your political party the democrats now have one opinion of news gathering and the republicans have another opinion of news gathering uh i mean that that seems to be the situation we find ourselves in uh, in this election year
3: well My time was much easier. That division did not exist. There was professional journalism, and professional journalism required a balance, required context. And I don't recall anyone uh, really taking a different point of view. Uh, People might not like it. Uh, Some people obviously resisted negative uh, remarks. But I think there was a general consensus in society uh, of what constituted professional journalism. That has broken down. And and, uh, it was much easier to be uh, in media in the 1980s than it is today, precisely because there was a more or less a consensus in society as to what constituted um, professional journalism. I agree with you that today that consensus has disappeared and uh, it's much, much harder to argue your point as to what is a balanced and proper news story.
2: I think it's also the case that the image of America is really being shifted as we move from having honest reporting of good and bad things in this country and in our allies to a position where we're supposed to be the propaganda spokesman for the president and the people around him. And I think that doesn't do a good job of presenting the United States and our values and our freedoms, think it's a real problem for America's image abroad.
1: And that's the fear, right, that these changes could potentially be creating more of a propaganda form of media. Or I just think-
3: lousy, you know, you're just sort of going to destroy morale to the point where you're just not going to produce exciting, good programs. I mean, by the way, I I would mention just because I think contextually it's important to know that the, let's say the Russian journalists that I work with when I'm a guest on the Russian program of VOA, most of them have worked at BBC, have worked at other professional stations. I mean, they're coming in as, as very, very professional journalists, uh, young, energetic, thoughtful, and uh, VOA may very well lose them back to BBC, back to Deutsche Welle, to other stations and so forth. So I think. Uh, it's, it's, you need a, uh, as best as you can, a harmonious workplace to produce good programming.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's unfortunate, but I think for, it's for journalists in the private sector, it's not a new experience. It's interesting that now, uh, journalists with what, what is essentially government funded jobs are now experiencing the kind of newsroom instability that's been sort of, um, the primary uh, experience of the workplace for, for, for working reporters uh, in you know in, in journalism in the United States it's been it's been downsizing for for uh, for 20 years.
3: Well because VOA at least English language journalists are coming out of US uh, schools of journalism and some have worked in commercials some worked at VOA then they go back to commercial. It's, it's a very fluid uh, situation in terms of, of working. It's not like there's some kind of separate journalism right. out there that's that's called US government it's it's a journalism and you you get a job and if you're interested you continue and and you go on back into the private sector or or reverse
1: so Jane Curry as a historian uh, you know a political scientist and a historian I'm I'd love to maybe have some of your closing thoughts about why people should be paying attention to what's happening at Voice of America right now, why this is an important broadcaster um, and and what sort of effect these changes are having, Why should this be a story that that everybody is paying attention to right now?
2: I think our image with the rest of the world is very important, and it's being damaged by these sorts of changes, because America was always the beacon for freedom, and now it's it's the beacon for a conservative takeover. I think that's one major takeaway from this. I think it's also the case that, as what happens with Voice of America is in illustrative of how the Trump administration is looking at media freedom in this country and their willingness to be criticized. And I think that's a real serious domestic issue. Um, I think those are the two real takeaways and that it matters how America looks to the rest of the world, because our foreign policy is not simply where our military goes or military threats or economics. It's also the position of America as a leader in the free world. And we're losing that position by this kind of action and others. Depressing? Yeah.
0: Well, you know, it's it's September of 2020. Um
3: if i could uh just pick up on on what Janie just said and add that we live in a dangerous globalized world and that much of the uh conflicts are going to be played out not necessarily with arms but certainly with ideas beliefs and values and i think that we as a country and we as a part of the western world uh need to have our uh values projected explained uh because I think it, it would behoove us not only in terms of you know, strict uh, national security, but also in terms of trade, in terms of economics, in terms of growth. Uh, there is a lot to be projected. And I would just raise, just as a closing remark, the extent to which Americans were beloved. We were beloved in the late 1980s throughout Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union in ways that I think would be hard for most Americans to understand today. Uh, I happened to be, you know, present and at the Board for International Broadcasting when we were hosted by Lech Valenza uh, in the Belvedere Palace, who hugged our board and said, it is because of you that I am here. Uh, We went to Budapest, believe it or not, and we're in the Parliament building in Budapest, and the entire Parliament gave us a standing ovation to RFE for what it had done over the years. And maybe the greatest testimonial is the fact that Radio Free Europe today is in Prague as a gift from Václav Havel for the work that Radio Free Europe had done over the years, offering the building in Prague for $1 rent a year as a present to the United States for its work. I happened to attend the 40th anniversary of Radio Liberty in Moscow at the House of Writers in March of 1993. Everybody came, including Gorbachev, who managed to raise a toast to our common victory over communism. That is the way America was seen in the late 80s and early 90s. We've lost that. And I think I don't necessarily expect us to have it again, but I think there are places in Africa, Latin America, Asia, Middle East, where we really can make a difference with people who are democratically inclined and really develop normal, good relations.
2: But we need to have credibility that our international media provided us for people in Africa and Asia and Latin America and the former Soviet Union to see so that they actually take our government and what we do seriously. And that's not happening.
3: You know last year at University of Texas we had a group of journalists from Central Asia from Kazakhstan Kyrgyzstan Uzbekistan for a training program that the State Department had put together and in conversations with them they said without VOA Radio Liberty and BBC they would have no idea what's going on in their country today that is only because of these three major international broadcasters that they then take the reports of VOA, RL and, and BBC and put it into local press. They rephrase it. They use it. He said, without that, we would have no idea what is going on in our country, what our leaders are doing. Uh, we would be totally lost. And that is of a today that is happening.
1: Mark Palmer, Jane Curry, Brandon Burke, thank you so much for joining us on Radio Survivor and, and talking about this rich history of broadcasting and helping us understand what's happening right now as we record this episode. Um, thanks for being on the show. Thank you. Thank
3: you. You're welcome. We enjoyed it.
0: Well, I want to thank our guests again for joining us today on Radio Survivor to help us learn about such a interesting enormous part of uh, radio history outside of the boundaries of the United States, outside of the listening area that uh, we usually um, consider, that we usually think more about here at Radio Survivor and yet uh, a part of our uh, radio history and a part of our uh, country's uh, legacy in radio. Radio Survivor is online at Survivor.com where it can be heard each week as a podcast. It's also broadcast uh, around the country and a few affiliate stations around the world as a radio program. To find out more about where you might be able to hear Radio Survivor on the radio, you can go to radiosurvivor.com slash affiliates. That's affiliate radio stations. Our program, uh, in addition to being free to subscribe to anywhere where you get your podcasts or listen to online in browser at radiosurvivor.com. Uh, you can also help support the work. It's a listener and reader-supported enterprise. To find out more, go to radiosurvivor.com. We would love to hear from you. If you have feedback on today's program or any of the past programs, uh, 260-something episodes that we've uh, put out these days, Um, or uh, anything that's written about on the website you can email us the address is podcast at radiosurvivor.com on behalf of Jennifer Waits who produced today's episode and Paul rees who will be back soon my name is Eric Klein thank you so much for listening we'll see you
1: next week